Hi, and welcome to The Leadership Blog, the podcast holding weekly conversations with leaders serious about transforming the status quo and leading in positive change. Introducing my guest for today, Corey Kids founder, Rachel Currow. Becoming a parent opens your eyes. Unfortunately, one of the things that opens your eyes to is how hard it is to be a parent, particularly when it comes to reliable and affordable childcare. This was the experience that Rachel found herself having after the birth of her children. Not one to hang about, she quit her big job and commenced her mission to make childcare fair and accessible for everyone and improve society as a result. In this conversation, we go from the political to the practical, covering social impacts of the pandemic, child developmental psychology, and of course, leadership. I hope you enjoy. I'm an immigrant. I arrived from New Zealand a long time ago. I did um, I did my postgrad study in England. And after that, I went to McKinsey and I worked there for six years. And then I became CEO of a healthcare company, uh, actually two in a row. And then um, it was while I was working as the CEO of this healthcare company that I had my first baby. And I kind of up until this point, I'd experienced, uh, I would, I guess, like a fairly straightforward kind of linear life. You know, I had this, this, this thing where, you know, you worked hard, you did exams, you know, you kind of, you entered the professional world. Like it was all very sort of systematic. You did what was expected of you and you kind of, that's the way life worked. And, um, and then I had this baby and I, sort of assumed that the system, which had always worked pretty well for me in the past, would continue to exist and and work well. And I became aware through my own experience and actually more through hearing about everyone else's experience as well, that the system was not working. And, you know, it was incredibly expensive childcare. It was kind of set up for this nine to five Monday to Friday working week when loads of my friends just didn't work that way anymore. It was incredibly hard to find great childcare. No one really quite knew what they were doing. There was no one to guide you. And, um, you know, and then the more I looked into this industry, um, the more I realized it also doesn't work for the people working in the industry. You know, it's very, very low paid. It's, um, you know, there's, there's many problems with career ladders and things. It can be very lonely. So I started seeing all of these problems. And because I was working at that stage in healthcare in the industry of healthcare, and I was working in a role where I very much thought about um, health tech, but also health systems. So one of my roles um, had been that I was the, um, uh, I, I led strategy for the NHS in London, and that is really thinking about healthcare as a whole system. So I, I kind of was was in that mindset anyway, and I was looking at childcare and thinking, do you know what? This whole I can see that the whole system is broken. It's broken for everyone involved in it, and it needs to be completely redone from scratch. Um, and so the first thing I I thought was, okay, cool. Um, who's doing this? Like. And again, I was used to healthcare. So in healthcare, you've got, there's so many teams doing amazing innovation work. There are loads of innovation conferences. You can go to one just about every day if you want to, you know, there's so many specialist investors and investor conferences. Anyway, it's like this whole thing of healthcare innovation. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll just, I want to, I want to find out about childcare innovation. So I started looking, I was like, where are the conferences? Who are the investors? And it was like, 
crickets. It was like, it was unbelievable. Like no one was doing it. And I don't want to say that there weren't, that there are wonderful people in the industry of childcare. There are people doing incredibly great work, but it just wasn't done in the same way as in healthcare where, where you kind of have tech people and product people and digital people and people trying to do that kind of innovation. That was the thing that was missing. So, um, so that's really how, why I decided that I had to do it myself um, because no one else was doing it. And it was just such a crying, crying need. Absolutely. Why do you think there is this lack of a systematic approach about how we structure childcare? Why was it so just piecemeal and without a proper strategy? I think it's sort of grown up organically. And one of the things that, um, so there's a couple of things about the industry that are really problematic, especially in the UK. One is it's incredibly fragmented. So when you, when you think about childcare, you don't, you don't really think of it companies generally. You generally think of like an individual person, maybe a nanny, a childminder, maybe, maybe a nursery, but it might be an independent nursery. And the problem with that is it means that everything's extremely subscale. So you, you don't get the kind of investment in thinking about curriculum in a really kind of high level way because you've got people whose job it is just to think about curriculum. You know, you, you, you don't get that specialization because everything's just subscale. Everyone's just paddling and like running to try and keep, keep everything afloat. You know, it's incredibly hard to run a great independent nursery. It's, it is, it's almost all of them are not making money. You know, the chances that they're going under are very high. You've got like loads of incredibly low paid people who might be amazing. They might be very talented, but they're working so hard just to keep afloat. So, so that's one thing is like, it's just so fragmented. And then the other, the other feature of the UK childcare industry is there's hardly any public subsidy at all to it. And that's very different to most countries in the world, most developed countries. So, you know, the whole of Europe thinks about childcare very differently and they put a ton of public money into it. So it's, they basically have huge subsidies. Whereas in the UK, the total amount of subsidy is very small. Yeah. And that's actually something that I found quite a shock when I became a parent. And I think a lot of parents do. And in fact, the general public in general don't realize how little public subsidy there is into childcare. You know, some of my friends that are in their early mid twenties, they just assume that after they have a baby, there will be this public support for them. They never think that they're going to be in a situation where they will actually have to make a decision whether they want to return to work or pay a bill for childcare, which, you know, the average cost, I think, something like of a nanny in London is £37,000 a year post-annual, you know, post-tax income. Um, childcare and nurseries are not much cheaper either. So you're really in locked in this, in this position. And I think it does come as a shock to the system. And why do you think it is that we invest so little in childcare or there's so little public subsidy for childcare? Almost everyone involved in the, in the industry, overwhelmingly, as a, as a provider, is female. And mo- the vast majority of all of the people who spend the money are female as well in it. And... So it's, it's just, it's a very, 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 very female issue. And it's possible to just kind of forget about it, I think, if you're a male. And I think this has been, to me, so obvious in the pandemic response. So you've had bailouts of some really specific industries, you know, there's been specific bailout for things like theatre, there's been... Um, you know, this huge amount of money going into the retail and hosp- uh, going into the hospitality sector with Eat Out to Help Out. 
And, and it's, to me, it's this absolutely glaring omission that childcare hasn't received this. And that's at the same time as also lots and lots of evidence has come out that the pandemic is just disproportionately affecting women. You know, it's making women not, it, women are losing their jobs. They're not, not getting new jobs. They're working more part-time. Like clearly they are absorbing the lack of childcare during the pandemic. It's being absorbed by women. And then you kind of think about the people who are in the room when these decisions are being made, you know, they're, they're all men. Like, I, do, I don't think this is a coincidence. Yeah, I think very, very little about that is a, is a coincidence. And I think people sometimes like to think that it's a coincidence because they don't want to admit to themselves that it can't be that bad, you know, because surely the right people in the right places are thinking about this actively and they're just not. Um, so you, hence you found yourself in a situation where you, know, you found that the childcare was so difficult, so piecemeal, not properly funded, um, and you decided to bring about Quora Kids. So when you had this brilliant idea, how did you set about turning it into reality? What was the first step that you took? So I was working at the time, um, and I, um, I'm quite a risk-averse person, um, which might sound surprising because you think of entrepreneurs as being like, risk-loving. But my approach is to de-risk that, you know, if I have to do something risky, I want to just make it, I want to de-risk it as much as I can. So, you know, part of that was I always wanted to start a business, but I waited until my personal life was very sorted um, because I didn't want to be juggling too many things at once. And, um, and I also waited until I had worked for a few years um, in my career and I had some savings. Um, so that kind of de-risked that as well. I have a lot of founder friends who don't de-risk, who don't do, have either of those things. And I just, I have such admiration for them. <laughs> I mean, I think it's amazing. My, my friends who are sort of, you know, 25 and single and don't have any savings and are, are doing entrepreneurship. I think it's amazing, but it's not what I did. It's not, it's not for me. Um, so that was kind of getting those foundations in, in place was important to me. And then, um, and then I, cause I had a job, I, um, I decided to just test out a few things before I quit my job and I set myself um, a really clear experiment. And I, I said, uh, so I messed about with loads of different ideas and kind of explored them and, you know, in my spare time and made all sorts of Excel models and got excited about things and realized they were terrible. And, you know, I spent like a good six months kind of to like, you know, putzing about with ideas. And, um, and talking to my husband was, was pretty, uh, he was very influential and sort of, I remember we took a few long car drives, we, we did a road trip where we kind of talk through these ideas and stuff. And then I got to this one idea, which became Coro Kids, that I um, was really, really, really excited about. So I set myself a very clear sort of challenge, which was, okay, I'll stick up a landing page. Um, I used Squarespace. Um, because it, it apparently was going to be easy. I got to say, I didn't find it that easy. It made me cry. But anyway, I finally finished this like page, stuck it up. And um, I said to myself, if I can get, I can't remember the exact number. It was like 30 or something. If I can get 30 families to sign up for this proposition within two weeks, then I will quit my job. And I, um, and I, when I tried to get people to sign up and I remember for the first week people didn't really sign up that much and I kind of got to the end of the first week and I was like okay well I'm glad I didn't quit my job that's fine and then you know on to the next idea and then I, but I kept it up and I kept trying and I kept trying to find different like ways I was playing around with different ways of communicating this proposition and stuff 
And then I remember it was like Tuesday of the second week and I went to lunch with my friend and I had put my own, my mobile number as the, um, on the, on the web, web page. I mean, which didn't matter because no one was like calling it anyway. And then someone called in the middle of lunch and I kind of I, I answered the phone. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. You're interested in this proposition. Right. I'll, you know, I'll call you back and then put down the phone and then it rang again. And I think it rang like two or three times during that lunch. And then I got back to my office and I had loads of signups for this thing. And I had just found the right combination of words and channel and everything. And I ended up with, with you know, at the end of that week with, um, with a lot more than, than my task, my challenge that I'd set myself. So I quit and I worked work, the, on the, the Friday of the second week, I walked into my boss's uh, office and said, I'm going to be leaving. And that was the start of Cora Kids. Oh my goodness. What a story. And isn't it amazing how there was this lag effect and suddenly you built momentum. So at that time you were CEO of Tom, Dr. Tom. Is that correct? That was, it was a different job. So I had my first baby when I was CEO of Dr. Tom, but I, then I went and I ran a chain of IVF clinics. So it was actually the IVF sure. clinic job. Were you kind of already thinking about leaving that job prior to having this entrepreneurial idea or, you know, cause it's a big thing to go from being a CEO and essentially an executive to being a founder and an entrepreneur, you know, especially at a large scale, because, you know, you weren't going to launch like a, a, a book club or, you know, a small cafe or anything. You were really thinking big scale because you were used to running big scale projects. So were you already sort of mentally thinking when you were in employed previously in your executive position, like, I want to have a big business that I just want to found and run? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I, I was pretty influenced by by a few things, I guess. Well, yeah, one, one was I had, I had, or I had been operating in my career at quite big scale. So, you know, when I was a consultant for McKinsey, I would be dealing with the boards of very large companies. So I kind of always was thinking like that. So I had this, I had this big um, decision to make about whether to take venture capital money or whether to just grow kind of, as they say, bootstrap. So, you know, grow more slowly, maybe take a little bit of money from, you know, people like angels um, or to take venture money, which means you're really saying you're going to grow very big. And um, I, I was speaking to my husband about this and he said to me, Rachel, you are going to work equally hard, whether you're running a small business or a big business. You're going to, because he knows me and, you know, I, I'm, I work very long hours by choice. It's just what I do. And he was like, so you may as well do a big business. <laughs> and I was pretty influenced by that because when I thought about it, I was like, yeah, you know what? If I was setting up a local cafe, I would still work every hour. I would. So, um, so it was kind of like, well, why not? The other reason is because I was setting up something that was a marketplace. And marketplaces kind of do need to be big because otherwise they don't really work. And then the other thing was, um, yeah, just the problem I was trying to solve. Like, I, 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 it. I think I describe my emotion about it as I'm just annoyed. It's mostly like I'm annoyed that this doesn't already exist. I'm actually annoyed that I have to do it. Like it's, it, it sucks and it sucks for women. I'm, I'm very motivated by the fact that this is, this mostly impacts on women. I'm very motivated by seeing my friends like impacted by this. And you know, one of the things that just annoys me is I was at university with lots of people who I knew when they were at university, I knew them as a couple. I knew them even before they got together in many cases. 
And in so many cases, the woman was like better at university than the man, at least as good, but often did better. And then they get together. And then I, and now I know them, you know, years later in their careers and the man is doing better in his career and the woman is taking a step back. And I'm like, that's not fair. You were better. <laughs> like, it's not fair. And I, I just, I, 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 I just want to fix that. It's so annoying. And there's still this expectation, I think, that the woman takes a back seat. And especially it's come to prominence during the pandemic, as you were mentioning earlier. You know, there's an article that I think you shared that was saying that women are probably going to be set back decades in women's development, you know, during this pandemic, because they are picking up the majority of the chores at home and doing most of the home educating and they're still maintaining their jobs. What do you think needs to happen for this imbalance to be rectified? Um, there's probably, there's the sort of governmental stuff, like, you know, more subsidies to childcare, there's societal stuff, um, you know, like it really bugs me the way so many people talk about mums and don't talk about dads. And this is absolutely rampant, you know, in, in the school community, I got to say the childcare tech community is terrible at this. You know, there's so many startups that are targeting mums, uh, which really annoys me because it just cements the perception that it's a mum's job to do all of the like admin around parenting, which is a lot of admin. Uh, and, you know, I find it really, I find it really backwards, this really retrograde thing that you're meant to be this kind of forward thinker. And actually, you know, you've invented an app, you've called like, you know, healthy mummy or something. It's like, nah, don't like, don't, what about the dads? Anyway, um, so that I think there's a there's a there's a lot there. You know, I am. I spend more time just thinking about how we how I as Cory kids can help. You know, I'm a big believer in just in thinking about your sphere of influence and your sphere of control, and just focusing on the things that you can control and the stuff that I personally can control. I can't control any of this. I'm uh, that stuff I just mentioned. I mean, I can complain about it, and and I do, but um, the stuff that I can actually control is just trying to make Cora Kids the most as helpful as it possibly can be. And so um, what we've been working on for the, the basically the whole history of Cora Kids has been um, making it very simple, very easy, very convenient, as affordable as possible, like, tr- you know, make, getting, all, getting the right nannies in the right place. Um, <laughs> it's harder than it sounds. Training them up really well, like building all of the automation that we've done around the paperwork. Just that's been our real focus for the last kind of three years ish. And um, what I'm now turning my attention to, because that's in an amazing place, like the the customer reviews are phenomenally great. Like the feedback is just one of the great joys of my life um, is opening up our customer feedback, like internal channel and, and reading it. It's unbelievable. So that's an amazing place. And what I'm now turning my attention to is um, thinking about how we can make the childcare that we're delivering truly transformational. And I'm doing a lot of work um, at the moment thinking about um, subjects like child mental health. It's a slightly different theme to what we were talking about, about the parents, but I think it is something that parents are really worried about. And um, what we've been focusing on up until now is making things really easy and convenient for the parents. What, what now our new focus is, okay, great, we've done that. And now let's make this so brilliant for kids. And my, my aspiration is that when you use Coro Kids, you're not just giving your child something for this 
this hour or this day or this week or this month or even this year, by using CoroKids, you're giving your child tools and setting them up to have an entire flourishing life. That, and that's, you know, if we get the mental health stuff right and we train our nannies in the right way, um, I think we can do that. Yeah, that's a really powerful message, actually, because one of the other things about childcare, the way that it is today, if it is so piecemeal, is that the child lacks a place of security. You know, the parents can only sometimes look after them. The grandparents can only sometimes look after them. And there's a lot of transitions and changes as well with, with the nursery. There's very little permanence, right? And I think yeah. it's easy to underestimate what an impact that can have on somebody's early years. And I think early years is something that you are really passionate about, those positive experiences in the early years of life. What were your early years of life like? Um, really good. I, I grew up in a, a, an incredibly safe environment. And I think about this a lot. I, I think about my own childhood a lot. I'm trying to very consciously design my own children's childhood to maximize their sense of security and joy. And that's very much driven by what I've read about um, brain development and the, and the way child development works. It's totally fundamental to, to child mental health is this idea of building a sense of safety and security. So I think about like filling up my children's cups with joy and love and security. That's not, that's one of these things that, yes, it's great for the day and for the moment and it's beautiful and it's, you know, the moments of highest joy in my day, but it's also wiring their brain in a very specific way that will make them more resilient for the rest of their lives. So it's like an amazing thing to do for a kid. And, uh, and yeah, so, so my, my own childhood was just very safe and secure in so many ways. I grew up in a very small farming town um, at this, on the south coast of New Zealand. I was the kid of two teachers and it was a town where housing was very cheap. And so we lived in this huge big house. Uh, we weren't rich, but we weren't poor. We were like very middle. You know, I could walk to my very, very nice, safe school and just everything about life was very kind of safe, predictable, positive. Everyone I know leaves that town because it's super boring, <laughs> but it's incredible. But everyone says it's an amazing place to grow up because, you know, you don't need life to be exciting. You don't need the place you're living to be exciting when you're like not to, you know, whatever, 10, 12, you start getting, start getting a bit boring as a teenager. That's actually really interesting when you say you don't need life to be that exciting when you're you know, not a teenager yet, because so many parents today feel this pressure to just fill their kids' life with as much stimulation as possible. You know, let's get you to these lessons. Let's try this. Let's take you on this holiday, you know, just like bombard them with life experiences. And I think that what kids really need is just some stability. And these values, I think, are a little bit lost because people feel this pressure in themselves right? In their own lives, they feel this pressure just to do as much as possible. So they think they need to put their kids through the same experience. And sometimes actually just having a comfortable life is, is good. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's a lot of evidence around the importance of unstructured time and play. Uh, and, you know, what may look like time wasting or purposeless to an adult is actually that's the child, play is the child's work is the yeah. phrase that is often used. And when you think about play, un play is unstructured, you know, purposeless activity that's joyful. And if you, one of the thing, one of the cool things about play is play is by very definition at the edge of your abilities, because 
if I gave you something that was too easy, if I gave you a toy meant for two-year-olds, you're it's not fun for you. That's not play for you because you it's boring. You can already do it, right? And if I gave you something that was way beyond your abilities, like, I don't know, like fly this helicopter or something, I'm assuming you don't know how to fly a helicopter, I might be wrong, um, then that again is like daunting, right? Because if I said to you, fly this helicopter, you're like, ah, that's not play. So play is between those two extremes. Play is something that is um, challenging, but not overwhelmingly daunting to you. And that's, if you think about it, that's where you maximize learning is in that, that, that area where something is like doable, but only just, that's the area that you should be in if, you, if, you, if you'd like to maximize learning. So rather than a, an adult kind of guessing, it's like someone else guessing where your abilities are, if you just give kids opportunity to play and you kind of lay out all these opportunities for them, they will naturally find that, that, that place where they're learning to, the, to their maximum ability. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's so much about child psychology, I think, that we're tapping into today that also informs us about how we think about ourselves and how we've grown up and how our brains are wired, right? So if we go, if we go to today, so now you've been running Quarry Kids for two years, three years, what have been some of the unexpected learning curves that you've had to come? Because look, you've come from a position where you didn't just have a steady job, you had big jobs, you know, you had big titles and you have a lot of solid, solid experience, but what have been some of the learning curves for you um, being a CEO of your own business? Yeah, a lot. Um, so definitely fundraising was something I didn't know that much about. Um, I hadn't really done any sales. Um, actually, you might, you might think, well, you just, ours is still not a business that does sales, but um, actually when you're a founder, everything is sales <laughs> all the time. Um, so I didn't really know how to pitch uh, another one would be like making digital product, um, and the discipline of product management. That's probably been one of the biggest learning curves for me. Um, and then, you know, some specific stuff around the, around building a marketplace. I've had to learn a lot about that. Uh, and then, and then it's a, it was a new industry to me, childcare. And luckily I am obsessed with child development. Um, I do actually have a PhD in development studies, so I, you know, I'm, I have an academic bent, um, but the industry of childcare was new to me. So uh, tons of learning curves. You just mentioned very casually that you have a PhD in developmental yeah. studies. You're obviously an incredibly academic person as well as, um, you know, having this successful executive career. What really drives you? Like what drives your curiosity? Um, I think I'm innately curious. Um, my normal emotion is sort of dissatisfaction <laughs> with whatever I'm doing. I'm always, I, I just always want to be learning and doing stuff better. Um, I do, I do a lot of lessons and courses. I, I love to learn. I love, love, love learning new things. I'm constantly, I like to learn about new areas. Um, so I'm, I'm always doing like YouTube videos about, you know, how to make latte art or how to dance some stupid hip hop move or something. I don't know, whatever, like stuff that I absolutely cannot do at all. I, I love it. I love nothing more than to learn something that I've never done before. I guess what I want to know from you is what is the, the best investment that somebody can make when they are looking to become really successful in business? What is the one area that could look at to fix? So for me, I think it's like to be successful in business, you, you have to be learning a ton constantly. 
Um, so the question is really just how you're going to do that. It's one of my, you know, my interview questions when I talk to people is how do you learn? You know, t just tell me about things that you're learning at the moment. And it is amazing actually how many people don't really seem to have an answer to that. Like they're not really learning that much. I can't have those people, basically. Learning is, is central to growth, right? And you want to be growing all the time because I think you're either moving forward yeah. or backwards. You know, so if you're not learning, you're just, you're just staying stagnant. And actually, you're not staying stagnant because your mind is just getting slower, right? Because you're not investing. So when you say, you know, you're interviewing people, obviously you're growing a team and you've built a brilliant team around you for Corey Kids. What are some of the other things that you really look at that are standout things for you in people when you're surrounding yourself with talent? One of the key things we look at is um, humility. And it actually goes hand in hand with this learning orientation. It's, it's another way of saying learning orientation, really. Performance is really a function of whatever your starting point is, plus your trajectory of improvement. And so when you're hiring people, you've got a choice. You can either hire people who have a very high starting point, like their performance is already very high, maybe because they're very experienced or whatever, or you can hire people who have a lower starting point, but a steeper trajectory, right? And right now, you know, we're at a stage where we can, we can now hire like really big people with great, like loads of experience. Earlier in our journey, we couldn't hire those people. Like they wouldn't come and work for us. We couldn't afford them, you know. So the only thing we could do was hire people who, who had a very steep learning trajectory. And um, so I had to really focus on that learning trajectory. And one of my core beliefs is that it, the, the, the arrogance and, and ego is a, huge, um, in, is a huge interference in learning. You know, if you think that you already know stuff or you don't need to learn, or if you have kind of some kind of block where you're not very receptive to feedback, um, or you're not like in tune enough with your own emotions, you're not, you, you, you can't express them or you don't, there's sort of lots of different blocks that are related to ego that will stop you learning very quickly. And so what we look for is the opposite of ego, which is humility. And um, right from the very start, we built this in. So one of the exercises, just to get super practical, how did we do this? We did it in a few ways, but um, one of the exercises we would do is we would get everyone, we would give everyone a scenario and they had to make a phone call to a, um, to a client. And actually the client would be me in a different room. So I would like play the parent and we would give them this scenario and it was quite a complicated scenario. And we'd give them this piece of paper and say, can you read, th read through this for like 10, 10 minutes and come back and ask us if we have any questions, if you have any questions. And then we'd come back and um, most people wouldn't have questions. And that was always a little bit, I mean, it wasn't a huge problem, but we loved it when people did have questions because that showed that they were comfortable admitting that they didn't understand something, which is incredibly important for, if you're gonna, for your learning trajectory. So, so that was one thing we were looking for is we loved it when people asked clarifying questions and then we would get them to do this phone call and they would, you know, do it well or not. It didn't really matter the first one. And then we would come back in and we would say, okay, can you do a self-evaluation? How do you think that went? And some people would say, oh, it went well. And then not really say anything else. That was very bad. And other people would say, oh, you know, I, I was disappointed with myself for doing this and I did this wrong and next time I would do this. And, you know, they would be, they would start to be doing this reflection. We love that. You know, that again is something that really like creates a learning trajectory. 
And then we would say, okay, great. So here's some notes from our side and we would give them some feedback and they'd say, okay. And then we'd say, okay, so you're, so, so, so can you summarize our feedback? And at this point it would be like, so some people had listened and they were like, oh, I need to do this, this and this. And other people would be like, uh, and they, were, they didn't actually really listen to the feedback, which again, that's the problem. Then what we would do is we'd say, okay, great. Now we're going to do it again. We're going to do the same call again. And what we were looking for was, an, was a huge improvement from, what, from the first call to the second call. It didn't really matter how good it was. What we, we were looking for the, the, the improvement, not the absolute performance. And so the, the, the ideal person we would hire would be someone who, you know, in the course of that 20-minute exercise, demonstrated that they were self-reflective, they, they listened to feedback, they took it seriously, they incorporated it, and they improved their performance from one thing to the next. And we freaking loved those people. And, that, and we hired those people. So that's my team now is all those people. How interesting. And thank you for sharing the exact practical steps that you can take, because it's one thing thinking that you're hiring for you know, learning capacity and another thing thinking, how do I actually apply this in my interview environment? So that's really, really important. So we're sort of coming to the end of the interview, but I'd love to know from you, on the topic of leadership, what advice would you give yourself, for example, when you were starting out? Let's say you, five years ago, you just before you went into this journey, what are, what are some of the advice that you would give yourself about how to be an effective leader? I think one thing that I have learned is the importance of making sure that everyone feels very heard and understood. Giving time to reflecting back to people whenever they, whatever they say, like reflecting it back to them just to confirm that you've heard it right. You know, doing that, you can do that on a one-to-one -one basis or you can do it on a, uh, you know, you can do it remotely over Slack. You can ask, you can do surveys. Like there are many ways that you can ask people to express their opinions. But asking for that and then acknowledging it, um, I think, sets a really strong foundation for whatever course you're going to go on. It doesn't mean that you're like that everyone's voting on everything. You can still go in a different direction, but you're doing it from a very strong foundation. And everyone, everyone knows that you've, you've kind of taken their, their stuff into account and you deeply understood it. I think that's very important. Another thing that I think has been very important is... Um, building a very high amount of trust between um, different team members. And actually who we hired was very important to that as well. You know, we hired, we put a big emphasis on uh, being open with our emotions and acknowledging and not, um, not expecting each other to be perfect and, and acknowledging that we ourselves are not perfect. Everyone who joins Cory Kids, I meet with them. And one of the things I say is we didn't hire a robot who looks like you. We hired actual you and you will sometimes feel insecure and like you don't know what you're doing and you'll, you'll make mistakes and that's not I'm not saying that because I've heard some report about you I'm saying that because you're a human being and that's what human beings are like so don't pretend to be a robot because none of us are robots and so we set up kind of expectations like that and then, um, and many other practices. And that I think builds a really high trust culture um, where people feel able, like if they're feeling under the weather or whatever, they'll say it and, and, you know, and, and things don't get misinterpreted. It really makes communication a lot clearer and sort of based on fact. Um, I mean, I can go on about this. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I think that was one of the, that was one of the key factors, I think, for building our team.
powerful authenticity. What do you hope that people say about you when you're not in the room as a boss? Um, there's things I wish they would say because I'm working on them, but I'm not sure they would. Um, like I, one of my, one of my flaws, um, as a leader is I'm too interested in too many things. And, um, so I always try to do too many things and I always struggle with focus. Um, and you know, try and just like get doing one thing well, rather than trying to do 10 different things. Um, so I wish they would say, um, wow, Rachel's so focused. <laughs> But I don't think they would. Um, I would love them to say, you know, Rachel's encouraging. I I think they would say I'm very I'm very helpful. Like I'm I'm very focused on being practically helpful. Probably the single most thing the single thing I say most often is cool. How can I help? Like how can I help you do this faster? Like how what barriers can I remove? Like I'm here to help. I very much see myself as working for them as much as the other way around. Um, probably more so. So I think they would probably say like Rachel's very sort of responsive and helpful. Amazing. So the final question from my side is what does ultimate success look like to you? Um, well, our, our vision is a world where everyone can access their perfect childcare. So I think that's, that's ultimate success. But now we're talking like life's work, you know, I want everyone to be able to afford what we're doing, which means we need to make it more affordable. Um, and we've got ideas around that. And, and we need to introduce a raft of new services so that they suit everyone. That is success for me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If so, hit subscribe, leave a review, and join me next week when I'll be talking to another entrepreneur about how they made their dream a reality. I'll talk to you next time.